country Trees, you know we can Work together and learn what we need To meet the challenge Traditional skills and modern techniques Whatever language you speak You have a world to offer Every day, climb with the ISA Welcome to the ISA Science of Arboriculture podcast series. This podcast series was developed by the International Society of Arboriculture to bring you the latest research-based information on tree care. If you have a favorite arboricultural topic that you would like to learn more about, please contact Luana Vargas, the producer of this series at the ISA office in Champaign, Illinois, or me, Tom Smiley, the host of this series at the Bartlett Tree Research Laboratory. Today's talk is by Dr. Thomas Schmidlin. He is a certified consulting meteorologist and professor in the Department of Geography at Kent State University in Kent, Ohio. He'll be speaking on human fatalities from wind-related tree failures in the United States. This lecture was originally presented at the ISA International Meeting in Providence, Rhode Island in July 2009 that in the last years of the 20th century, most people die in hurricanes from inland flooding. But what interested me was that about 10% of all hurricane fatalities in the U.S. were due to fallen trees. I began watching the news and digging into the data a little bit more, and it turned out that for many weather hazards, a substantial number of fatalities were wind-related tree failures, trees or branches falling on people. So I decided to more systematically look at this data, pick the last, well, since 1995, Uh, Pick that cutoff date because prior to that, one of my primary data sources doesn't have such reliable data. So at this point, we've just done it since 1995. The data sources for this information, primarily a federal document called Storm Data. You can get this online. Just Google Storm Data and it will come up. You can search for any kind of storm. You can search for any state. You can search for just storms that killed somebody or that just injured somebody. You can search for a certain amount of damage. This will only find, for me, wind-related tree failures that occurred in a storm. If it didn't occur in something that the Weather Service called a storm, then it's not going to be in my database. So it's not going to happen in lighter winds or, or trees that failed for other reasons. The federal document, Monthly Weather Review, also has a good summary of the annual Atlantic hurricane season and gives some details on fatalities due to hurricanes that was sought out. The National Weather Service also does service assessments for some major storms, not for every event, but for major storms, and that was handy. And the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta publishes this wonderfully titled document, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report. Makes great reading, but it's also a good source for storm-related injuries and fatalities. The types of windstorms that I looked at were thunderstorms, and I'll go through these in some more detail in a moment. The so-called non-convective high winds, these are large low-pressure centers, tropical cyclones, or hurricanes as we call them in the Atlantic, tornadoes, and then snow and ice, I have in quotes because it's, it's not a windstorm, but it is a weather-related uh, event that occasionally causes tree failures. So I want to go through the different wind events because I want to draw some comparisons and contrasts in these weather events because it relates to uh, tree failure and, and human hazards. The thunderstorm wind is sometimes called a downburst wind or a microburst. Almost every thunderstorm has an outflow. 
that brings a nice, cool, refreshing breeze before the rain comes, usually. When this outflow becomes stronger and exceeds about 55 miles per hour, we call it a downburst or a microburst. These are short-lived, just a few minutes. They may be a few hundred yards wide, maybe a few miles long, so very localized. It's a so-called straight-line wind. We call it straight-line wind to distinguish from tornadic winds, which are cyclonic or circular. There may be several minutes warning to the public, but the location is difficult to forecast, so the warning encompasses a whole county, when in fact, if one of these occurs, it's going to occur in just a few neighborhoods. One special kind of thunderstorm wind that actually does a lot of damage and results in a lot of these uh, wind-related tree failures that kill people is a derecho. A derecho is not something that has been talked about for very long. It was, the word was coined about 40 years ago, but it hasn't gotten into the public television use until just the last few years. But a derecho is a, a long-lived line of thunderstorms. And it will last for hours and hours. Individual thunderstorms come and go, but the line, the derecho, lasts for perhaps 12 hours or more and can cover hundreds of miles in that time. In any case, these severe thunderstorm winds give several minutes of high wind, and the public will probably hear the warning, severe thunderstorm warning, that encourages them to take some action. The frequency of thunderstorms in this country peaks down in Florida and through the southeast and along the front range of the Rockies and is relatively low in New England, the northern lakes, and in the west. And we'll come back to that in a minute where we see where people have been killed by thunderstorms causing tree failures. The derecho frequency, however, is very different from thunderstorms. Here's thunderstorm frequency. Derecho frequency peaks in the southern plains and from the upper Midwest down through the Ohio Valley and into the Mid-Atlantic. That will become important later. Here's a little cartoon of what it looks like. A thunderstorm with an outflow to the right. Uh, this doesn't become too interesting until the winds get up around 50 or 60 miles per hour, and they can be much higher. Thunderstorm outflow winds can reach over 100 miles per hour. Yeah, uh, this is number of derechos in a certain period of time, which escapes me, but it's per year. Yeah, well, it's a failure to not have my units on there. Typical outflow uh, damage, the trees tend to flow, fall down in one direction, or they may be splayed outward as the wind flows outward. Uh, they may be snapped, they may be uprooted, they may be, be broken, just broken branches. Here's a radar image of a derecho in the northern Midwest, northern plains. You see it's several hundred miles long, typical uh, bow-shaped to it, and it will be propagating east or perhaps southeastward, and warnings will be issued just in advance of those storms. Here's an example of a derecho in the 90s that went from the upper lakes, Lake Huron, southeastward across Ontario, down across New York State and into southern New England. The curves on here are drawn every two hours. So it started in the late evening of July 14th in the Upper Lakes and ended the following morning down in southern New England. And every uh, cross or X on there is a place of severe damage, wind damage, primarily to trees. Okay, the second type of high wind event is the non-convective high wind. This is a strong low pressure center, cyclonic storm. Uh, unlike the thunderstorm wind, these are long-lived and large area events. They cover one or two states or perhaps more. The storm itself may last a couple of days. The storm impacts at one location will last for several hours. It goes on and on and on. These are normally forecast quite a ways in advance, several hours in advance, maybe a day in advance. And the typical public issuance from the Weather Service is a high wind warning. Now, that doesn't elicit a lot of response from people. If you hear a high wind warning, you don't you know, close your house up and go to the basement and cancel all your plans for the day. Uh, you just know you're going to have to tie things down and it may get windy. And we'll see that's important later on. 
This is what the weather map would look like. This is an example of a real strong storm up over Minnesota, low pressure with fronts around it. And the highest wind would be right around the center of that low where these isobars are close together, the pressure gradient is high, and the wind is really whistling into the center of that storm. A place of common occurrence of these storms in the cold season is the Pacific Northwest. Storms that approach from the Pacific bring these high winds into northern California, Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, or the coast of Alaska. And these kinds of storms have resulted in huge blowdowns in the forests of the Pacific Northwest. These are also the storms that are nor'easters here on the East Coast. Storms that form offshore and they, they become East Coast bombs. We say they really develop into strong storms. And offshore, winds will be blowing at 50, 60, 80 miles per hour. Um, the perfect storm that was written about and the movie was made about was an extreme example of this. The tropical cyclones, which we know in the Atlantic as hurricanes, similar to these non-convective high wind events, are large, long-lived storms, a couple hundred kilometers across. Winds may be up to 150 miles per hour, at least over the ocean. These are long-duration winds again. So any one location will have hours and hours of strong winds. And this is important because it leads to fatigue on structures and on trees and other things. It, there may be a changing wind direction through the storm event. There may be debris in the wind, which accumulates through time. The winds which are strongest over the ocean, perhaps 150 miles per hour in the very strongest tropical cyclones, diminish rapidly inland. But damaging winds from tropical cyclones can extend hundreds of miles inland. Also, with tropical cyclones, tends to come heavy rain. And of course, this is very important in tree damage. Water in the canopy, wet soils uh, contribute to tree failure. The public issuance for the warnings will be either a tropical storm warning, if the winds are between 39 and 74 miles per hour on the coast, or a hurricane warning if it's over 75 miles per hour on the coast, and away from the coast, Inland, if the winds are still strong, the Weather Service will issue high wind warnings. Again, not something that elicits much response from the public the way a hurricane warning does. There's lots of different ways to depict hurricane risk in this country, but this is one pretty good picture, I think. Within the greatest risk along the southeast and portions of the Gulf Coast, and especially Florida, diminished risk northward and westward and inland. We'll come back to this map again later also. Schematic of what it looks like, just to get an idea of the size. We've all seen this on television now. Here's an example. I think it was Charlie in Florida. The primary wind damage area in a tropical cyclone making landfall is right around the eye. This is the area of strongest winds, and the winds diminish rapidly outward from the eye. However, because hurricanes have bands of squall lines that can be way away from, well away from the eye, you can have damaging winds tens or perhaps 100 miles away from the eye. So there could be 80-mile-per-hour winds in these thunderstorms way out here. So the focus tends to be on the eye and the path. But even if this storm didn't come ashore, there can be these bands of thunderstorms delivering 80, 90 mile per hour winds on land well away from the eye. So we tend to focus on the projected path of the storm because that is where the eye will be, but there can be damaging winds well inland and away from the eye, which catch people by surprise sometimes. Aerial view of some tree damage in tropical cyclone obviously damaging homes that were not damaged by the wind, but by the fallen tree. The tornado, on the other hand, is a short-lived, small storm. The average tornado, which you don't hear about, by the way, there are over 1,000 tornadoes a year in this country, and we don't hear about most of those. The average tornado is about 100 yards wide, on the ground for about a mile. It has peak winds of about 100 miles per hour, which will not blow down houses, but does blow down trees. 
and it's moving forward about 30 miles an hour. The ones we hear about are the big tornadoes, the two or three dozen a year that occur in this country out of the total of over 1,000. These may be a half a mile wide, on the ground for 30 or 40 or 50 miles, and have wind speeds 150 miles per hour or greater. But the trouble with tornadoes, of course, is they're short-lived. They're short-fuse storms, we say. The warning time average is now about nine minutes, and the public event is a tornado warning. And that tornado warning, like a hurricane warning, gets the public's attention and people do something. Unlike severe thunderstorm warning or high wind warning, where we say, okay, well, I might not get to play my ball game today or something, but I'm going to go on my usual business. The tornado frequency in this country, we know peaks in the southern plains and so-called tornado alley and eastward into the Midwest. There are quite a few small tornadoes in Florida also, but almost none to the west or to the far northeast. This is the damage path in Moore, Oklahoma, from a massive tornado a few years ago. Tornado damage uh, in trees tends to look rather haphazard. So it's not, they're not all falling in more or less the same direction as with straight-line thunderstorm winds. The fall path pattern may actually be toward the center of the path, and, but it, it looks sort of chaotic. And finally, although this is not a wind event, uh, snow and ice does it, do occasionally bring down trees or branches, cause damage, and sometimes injuries and fatalities. And in fact, these storms sometimes are associated with strong winds. They may have, these events may affect a huge area and have impacts for several days, and the public will receive from the Weather Service either an ice storm warning or heavy snow warning for this kind of hazard. I hesitate to even talk much about this because I'm talking to the experts, but uh, it's not just the wind, of course, that dictates whether trees or branches will fall and, and in what quantity and, and what they will do. But of course, tree species vary considerably in their vulnerability to breakage and to uprooting. With deciduous trees, it's very important the time of year of the wind event. If a, if a wind event occurs in July when the trees are in full leaf, it's a different impact than if a wind event occurs in March when the trees don't have leaves. The duration of the wind is important. And the longer the duration, the more likely something is to fail. The direction of the wind is important, and especially changing direction through the wind event can lead to additional failure. The effects of nearby trees, either causing sheltering or a domino effect of falling. And of course, how is the tree hooked down? Uh, soil types, depth of rooting, moisture. Has there been uh, root cutting with sidewalks or something like that? And especially with urban trees. Is it a solitary tree, a specimen tree, or is it a tree in a forest? All right, so let's cut to the results. Um, in the 13 years from 1995 to 2007, there were 407 people killed by wind-related tree failures in the country. Uh, this was county-based data, so any county that had one fatality during that 13-year period has a dot here. If the county had more than one fatality, then there's some other darker symbol. This does not include the trees that were fallen by Hurricane Katrina in Mississippi because the government hadn't tallied up those deaths yet and still hasn't for Louisiana, has not. So that's not included for Katrina. This does not include injuries. And typically in these kinds of events, there are many more injuries than there are fatalities. And these are only direct deaths from wind-related tree failures. If uh, someone dies in trimming the trees or pruning trees before the storm, that doesn't count. If someone dies in the cleanup of the trees after the storm, that doesn't count. So these are, are direct deaths due to wind-related tree failures. Well, there's a pattern here, isn't there? There's a pattern here. To have a wind-related tree failure causing a human death, you have to have a human, a tree, and wind. And in places where there aren't many humans, there aren't going to be many dots. In places where there aren't many trees, there won't be many dots. And 
if you don't have many high wind events over the course of the 13 years I looked at, you won't have any dots. So the relatively treeless and population uh, deficit, Great Plains and Intermountain Rocky West, don't have many human fatalities from wind-related tree failures. They're naturally focused in the highly populated, heavily forested, and stormy parts of the country, such as the Pacific Northwest, the urban corridor of the Northeast, much of the, of the uh, eastern Midwest, and the Southeast. This is only 13 years, mind you. It's a relatively small sample. This is about 32 deaths per year. That's not a lot compared to other causes of death in this country, but it is a lot compared to the general uh, mortality due to hazards in this country. In most years, this is more fatalities than die from hurricanes. It's about half of the total tornado death toll in most years in this country. So we worry a lot about hurricanes and tornadoes, yet we don't hear much about this, I find. Well, let's compare these two maps. It's not changing quickly, so it's going to be hard to compare. That's a population density map. That was the death map from wind-related tree failures. A lot of similarity. Forest cover map, which actually coincides pretty well with population density map. <laughs> now I want to break it down into the different types of wind. Of the 407 fatalities, 165 were caused by thunderstorm winds. Um, this is very rare west of the uh, about 100th meridian or 95th meridian here. Very rare in the western U.S. There are relatively few severe thunderstorms in the western U.S. Florida has lots of thunderstorms and a lot of people and a lot of trees. But it turns out the thunderstorms in Florida tend not to have high winds. So the, remember the derecho pattern? It didn't occur in Florida. But, so these thunderstorm high winds tend to occur again in the eastern Midwest, the urban corridor here, and through the southeast. Particular urban counties really show up here. And in fact, there were two examples of thunderstorm or of high winds that killed four people, one tree killing four people. One fell on a school bus in Queens, New York. Ten kids in the school bus, four were killed, six injured. And another fell on a uh, car and killed all four people in the car. You see Metro Atlanta showing up, Metro Cleveland, Metro Syracuse. And you can pick out other cities you know there also, Chicago. So this is, to some extent, an urban problem, as you'd expect, with a lot of people. It does not match up well with the map we saw earlier. Where thunderstorms are most common down here, but not high wind thunderstorms. The annual cycle of when thunderstorms are likely to kill people through wind-related tree failures, of course, follows the warm season thunderstorm maximum. It doesn't happen too much in the winter, but it happens quite a bit from about April through August when, th when severe thunderstorms in the east, midwest, and south are most common. The non-convective high wind events, these are big low pressure storm systems that cover uh, a state or two, cover a large area. Again, you don't see much of it through the plains and Rockies because there aren't many trees, aren't many people, and not many of these storms. This is really clustered in the Pacific Northwest. These are the big winter and autumn storms that come in off the Pacific with 80 to 90 mile per hour winds and blow down thousands upon thousands of trees and Washington state has the most number of deaths in this whole period of any state. It also occurs in the urban northeast, same sort of thing. An east coast uh, Atlantic nor'easter comes roaring up the coast with very strong winds and trees are toppled and it occurs sporadically uh, elsewhere in the east. This is a winter feature. So these kinds of storms are not common in the summer, uh, but they pick up in October and continue through April. Tropical cyclone deaths. 
Well, that was pretty predictable. Here's the map we saw before. And there's where the fatalities are from tropical cyclones. Uh, Metro Miami, Metro Atlanta show up, the cities in North Carolina, partly because Hurricane Opal um, in the southeast killed 14, caused 14 deaths due to wind-related tree failures from one tropical cyclone, 14 out of the 57. You see wooded eastern Texas also. This is an autumn feature, so of course it peaks in August, September, October, the Atlantic hurricane season. Deaths due to tornadoes caused by wind-related tree failures. Tornadoes knocking down trees or branches that kill someone, there really are not very many. 28 out of the 407 total we had are due to tornadoes. And they're scattered through the country, not, by the way, where most tornadoes occur. And why don't we have a lot of these in Oklahoma where we have lots of tornadoes? Well, there aren't as many trees and there aren't as many people. Many Oklahoma and Kansas tornadoes um, affect no one directly. This is a pretty flat seasonal pattern. Most of, about a third of these deaths, by the way, were caused by weak tornadoes. And weak tornadoes have winds of about 70 to 90 miles per hour. And we say in the weather hazard business that nobody's killed by weak tornadoes. Weak tornadoes really don't pose much threat of death or injury. But weak tornadoes do blow down trees. 70 to 90 mile per hour winds do blow down trees and branches. And about a third of all these deaths are in weak tornadoes. That emphasizes that the tornado and wind risk begins at a much lower threshold for tree failures than it does for blowing down a house, for example. And snow and ice, uh, this was a relatively small number, about 14 people. This is mostly in ice storms. Uh, surprisingly, two in Louisiana, people killed by trees falling in an ice storm. Otherwise, it's in the predictable areas of the north and in the winter, of course. Okay. This is a small sample, 13 years, so I, I, I'm not putting too much emphasis on these numbers. And remember, I did not include deaths from Hurricane Katrina in Mississippi. There were at least, I know now, 15 people killed by tree failures in Mississippi due to Hurricane Katrina, even not counting those. Mississippi, New Hampshire, Washington rose to the top. So nationally, there were 1.45 deaths per, mil per million population for this 13-year period. It's a pretty low death rate. But the top three or four states had rates two or three times the national average. So why do Mississippi, New Hampshire, Washington, West Virginia, Maine, and so on have such relatively high death rates nationally? Well, remember, percent forested. A little different map, percent forested, the southeast, West Virginia, New Hampshire, Maine, and Washington. The same states we see showing up as high death rates. Okay, who were these individuals, that, these 407, people killed by wind-related tree failures from 1995 to 2007. Well, almost two-thirds of those deaths were males. Now, why is that? The women always laugh at that question. <laughs> men are stupid. Uh, men don't know when to come in, so, inside. They go out in the storm and look around. Uh, we see this for many natural hazards, in fact, that, it, it, that men tend to be risk-takers more than women, not, not everyone, but in general, men are risk-takers more than women and will put themselves at risk to natural hazards. So this is a common observation, not just for this kind of a study. <clears throat> where were they? This was the thing that I was kind of most interested in. Where was this person when they were impacted by this tree or branch that fell in the wind? 44% were in their vehicles. This is somebody driving down the road on a windy day and a tree or branch falls into the, onto the vehicle. Or into the road and they drive into it. This doesn't include 
trees or vehicles that drive off the road and hit a tree. So these are direct wind-related tree failures on the highway. About 38% were outdoors, just working outside, maybe hiking, maybe camping. People in a tent I counted as outdoors. And about 18%, the remaining 18%, were in their house. And about half of those were in a mobile home. And that risk implies that mobile homes are much more dangerous than frame houses when a tree or branch falls on it does not offer as much protection. This is interesting to me because this comes into what I do for a business is how do we convey risk to the population? And if people are driving around out there in high winds and putting themselves at risk of a tree or branch falling on them, that message needs to be gotten to them during a high wind event, stay off the highways, stay in your house or some safer place. When we look at all the deaths caused by these kinds of storms, in this 13-year period in the U.S., half of all deaths caused by thunderstorms were wind-related tree failure. The others would be thunderstorms blowing down houses or toppling mobile homes or, or lightning killing people, things like that. Of all the deaths due to these non-convective high wind events, half were due to wind-related tree failures. Of all the deaths due to tropical cyclones, not including Katrina in Louisiana and Mississippi, a third of all the deaths were tree failures in this period. Yet, only 4% of deaths caused by tornadoes were wind-related tree failures. And I put to you that's because when there's a tornado risk, people aren't driving around outside, aren't walking around outside, gazing at the sky or something, aren't working outside with a tornado warning, a tornado threat, they've changed their mode of activity and they tend to get inside. And they're protecting themselves from wind-related tree failures. In this, group, in this data group, uh, people killed during hurricanes and tornado winds were more likely to be in their house than those killed by thunderstorms or non-convective high winds who were more likely to be outside or driving around, which tells me that the tornado warning or the hurricane warning causes a reaction in people. It causes a cessation of things. You cancel your plans with a hurricane warning or tornado warning. You don't go do what you're going to do. You shut things down and you seek indoor shelter. So therefore, you have fewer wind-related tree failure deaths in those kinds of wind events. But during a severe thunderstorm warning or a high wind warning, society seems to just keep on going. You know, the mall is still open and the movie theaters are still going and the school is still operating and the buses are going and people are still doing all their activity. They don't change their activity from my observation. I've suggested in giving this sort of talk to the National Weather Service offices that perhaps we need a two-tiered wind warning system for these kinds of events. If there's a big west coast storm coming or a storm up the east coast here in the wintertime, rather than issuing a high wind warning because the winds will exceed 55 miles per hour as they do now, Maybe they need a severe wind warning or some other kind of uh, more, more emphasis on the word for winds that might exceed about 75 miles per hour, where you begin to get a lot of trees down and other damage. Maybe there needs to be a two-tiered system because a 60-mile-per-hour wind is much less risky than a 90-mile-per-hour wind. So maybe we need two layers there, two levels, and, and they are considering it. So in, in wrapping it up in the last couple of minutes, I think this points out that wind-related tree failures are a substantial portion of the risk of death from wind hazards in the U.S. And remember, I'm not even discussing injury. I'm not talking about trees and branches that might fall a month later, the widowmakers that were broken or weakened by the storm and then fall on a hiker or some, a camper later on. That would not be in this database. How might we collectively reduce the risk? Well, of course, if the Weather Service could give better warnings to the public, and if the public responded correctly, then people would have more time, get into the right place, and put themselves at lowest risk. Of course, for the arborist viewpoint, um, achieving you know, perfect 
tree planting and tree maintenance and keeping trees in healthy, sound condition is extremely important. In some cases, we just have to change human behavior, uh, education, uh, explaining to people that this possible wind of 70 or 80 miles per hour, it's not going to blow your house down, it's not going to tip your car over, but it might knock your tree down or a tree branch down. So how can we instruct people to, to better change their activity when a warning is issued? And what's the next step? Um, this can go a lot of different directions. Um, at the Bartlett Tree Summit, we talked about knowing more about what wind speed it takes to cause tree failure. Uh, from my perspective, the database, extending the database back in time, maintaining it forward in time, extending it into other countries. Windstorms occur all over the world. People are all over the world. And trees are all over the world. What are risks in other countries, and how can we learn from other countries and, and compare risk from one place to another? And changing human behavior is a challenging thing to do. I think I'll stop there. It's a couple minutes early, but perhaps there'll be some questions. <clears throat> Tom, the, uh, the data are point data, but the power system, for example, is um, geographically dispersed. And I'm curious about your thoughts on how uh, topography in local sites might um, influence wind speeds, and is there a way to fill in the gaps and identify localized areas where uh, the, the actual winds might be even higher than predicted? You're, you're certainly right that local terrain topography has a large influence on wind near the ground. There's no easy answer, no. Uh, it has been modeled. People have modeled that based on... Uh, there have been some um, highly instrumented landscapes you know, where they've put out a very dense network of wind gauges and other things, anemometers and other things, and let it run for a while, and, and then they get a, a real picture of what the wind flow is like through that particular terrain. Then they extrapolate that with a computer model to various other terrains. I don't know of any other clear way of doing it. <laughs> um, you know, ridge tops tend to be vulnerable. Places where wind is funneled through terrain... There are famous places like that, the Boulder, Boulder Canyon in Colorado, for example, that is like that. Isolated high points are vulnerable. I don't know of a good way to map that on a piece of terrain that you would give me, other than just sort of qualitatively. Uh, but also, all these wind events have a lot of confusion in them. You know, there's, there's uh, turbulence. And if you're measuring wind at one spot, you think that's what you have. But if you set up a dense network, of course, you have all sorts of other wind variabilities. We only measure wind in the horizontal plane, usually. And of course, wind has a vertical component to it also. So wind is very localized, and that's, that's the challenge. It's, it's the turbulence in the wind. And the turbulence and the degree of turbulence has an effect, of course, on trees you know, and how they behave. It's not a steady state blow. A lot of us are consulting arborists, and we get called into situations like that. And we write our report, and we're going to be deposed and maybe end up in court. So when we write our report, uh, we like to have the nomenclature correct. So for the derechos, is that an accepted word in uh, the weather industry? Yes. Okay. And what's, what's the definition? I mean, I know when I see them, but do you have a definition for it? The definition has evolved, and different agencies might have different definitions. I can't recite it exactly, but it has to do with you have to have a certain number of wind damage reports over a large enough area over a large enough period of time. I'd have to look up the precise definition. But Walker Ashley, Walker Ashley, a professor at Northern Illinois, has published a couple papers on derecho, and I'm sure his articles give the definition. It, it is a, a word that you can use, but I wouldn't use it 
in a deposition or in court unless you've gotten a weather service report that says it was a derecho. Uh, thank you for your presentation. With your data, do you have any data that indicates there's an increase in the extreme weather events? Things to do with global warming and the, on a global scale. Is there any? Can you make any comment on that, please? My general observation is that there is not an increase. Now, numbers fluctuate, and there can be periods. I mean, it depends what storm event you're talking about. But if you're looking at Atlantic hurricanes, we're in a high period now, high frequency period. And those last 20 or 25 years, this one started in 1995. And prior to that, we were in about 23, 24 years of rather low frequency in the Atlantic. If you look at severe storms, thunderstorms in the American Midwest or something like that, we don't have a long enough database for that. So there'll be seasons that are high. There may be periods that are rather high. But I don't see an increasing or a decreasing trend in these hazards. Damages are increasing because we have more stuff. You know, we have more people. And we, we all have more stuff. So the same storm causes more damages. So damages are going up. That's for sure. But the actual storm frequency... I don't see trends. We just unfortunately had a Pittsburgh camper killed in West Virginia just last week due to a thunderstorm. And, uh, you know, from a utility perspective, we've had a lot of opposition to removal of trees in Pittsburgh of late. A lot of uh, communities and raising concern about removing mature trees for all the reasons we don't like to see trees come down. However, um, you know, when I hear you say that you're looking into perhaps developing a, a dual level of reporting for the public and maintenance of trees as item number two, of course, probably most of the people in this room see maintenance as number one. I see it as an opportunity perhaps for us as arborists to partner with people like yourself to help promote the maintenance aspect of trees. Do you see any potential possibilities there that we can team up on? Yes, I, I, I do, and that, I think, was part of the outcome of Bartlett Research Summit in February, where, again, I was with a bunch of arborists primarily and trying to see how we could interact, you know, and, and how this sort of wind data or this casualty data, risk data, you might say, could be integrated with uh, tree maintenance and tree care and tree planting and tree use. I think one thought that crossed my mind with this potential Weather Service two-tiered wind warning system, they issue the high wind warning at 57 miles per hour, it turns out to be 50 knots, and that's where there's a little bit of structural damage. You might get a few weak trees, branches coming down, but I might be wrong, but I don't think 50, 60, 65 miles per hour blows down very many healthy, sound trees or branches. But the two-tiered wind warning system, if, if that second tier would kick in, say, at 75 or 80 miles per hour, 75 maybe because that's also hurricane strength. So for an inland windstorm, if the Weather Service thinks broad-scale winds will be up over 75 miles per hour, as with Hurricane Ike here in September, that kind of warning also implies that maybe even healthy sound trees are going to be broken and coming down. But the more important thing to me, maybe, is that it, it might imply to the public to get into the house, get into a building, where even a fallen tree is unlikely to kill you. So that kind of interaction, I, I hope, happens. And uh, I'd be happy to get suggestions from anybody or see what we could do. I, I'm learning a lot from all so we got about This concludes Dr. Thomas Schmidlin's talk on human fatalities from wind-related tree failures in the United States. 
If you want to learn more about tree failures and how to prevent them, the ISA offers several books on this topic. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast series and join us next time for another Science of Arboriculture. Trees in every country. Trees, you know we can. Work together and learn what we need to meet the challenge. Traditional skills and modern techniques. Whatever language you speak, you have a world to offer every day. Climb with the ISA.